Welcome to the Carbon Stations podcast, where we speak to some of the leading figures in the emerging carbon industry. Our guest today is Natalia Dorfman, CEO and co-founder of carbon insurance company Kita, whose aim to support is to support the carbon removal industry with insurance products that reduce transaction risks of carbon purchases. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, I'm really excited to talk all things carbon insurance with you. I think it's a, a really fascinating space. But before we do get into that, it would be great if you could give us an understanding of your background and the path that essentially led you to the carbon industry. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And it's a real pleasure to be here. So thank you for having me on the show. So my background that led me to the carbon industry and to Kita, I'll keep it abbreviated, but I grew up in Southern California, very much outside, always out on the beach. Um, so I've always loved being outside. I went to North Carolina for university and I majored in environmental science, largely again, because I wanted to go outside and be hiking. And so I studied, for example, the impact of climate change upon tree growth, tropical field biology, all of these things, which was a wonderful thing to study. But I did decide that I didn't want to be an environmental scientist. Um, and then after university, I ended up falling into the career of doing business development for international law firms. So I did that at law firms in New York and Belgium and London. And broadly speaking, what that job is, is looking at different client industries and different types of law and helping the law firm to identify the best opportunities that it could pursue, both on the law firm wide level, as well as an individual client pitches um, and other forms of strategy that we could identify. And the thing within that career that led me eventually to Kita is I spent eight and a half years at a law firm called Clyde Co., which is one of the world's largest law firms that focuses on the insurance industry. And so when I started at Clyde Co. is when I learned about what I would term sophisticated insurance. So most people know insurance in the context of maybe you have house insurance or, or car insurance or maybe insurance for your bike. But at Clyde Co. I learned about what people call specialty insurance and business insurance. And this would be things like political risk insurance for people who have assets in countries where they might have those assets taken away from them by government regime changes or have the value of those assets impacted by, by war or terror. It's things like cyber insurance that protects our, our data um, or ransomware attacks against corporates. It's insurance for large financial institutions that need to have loans protected such that assets ranging from renewables to satellites are able to get financed and launched. And so I became a huge advocate of insurance because once you work with the industry, I think at least I started to see how indispensable it is to just the underpinnings of the global economy. Whenever anything goes wrong, anything you hear about in the press, there's always an insurance company there who is paying out an insurance claim such that the affected parties can get on and keep on doing what they are meant to do. I'm sorry. And over time at Clyde & Co, I was promoted to global head of new business. And in that role, I started looking at climate change. So how could the firm start to identify opportunities for ourselves and for our clients in this fast evolving space? And so I led the business development strategy for the climate risk practice. And we worked with a lot of clients in terms of the regulations and liabilities coming out of climate change that were driving behavior, sometimes helping clients to avoid 
bad effects on their business, but also helping them to look at opportunities. And as you can imagine, oftentimes this involved the carbon markets. And so that at some point, I guess I decided that's all I wanted to do for the rest of my career was look at climate change. And my job at Clyde & Co was wider. And so I left the firm and that is where I joined Carbon 13, a venture builder for climate tech startups in Cambridge. Um, and that's where I met my two co-founders and that's where we started Kita. And really the idea for starting Kita was that without insurance to mitigate risk, um, both for the company that is capturing carbon dioxide, as well as for the financier of that company, we felt that many companies in the carbon markets were going to hit a cap to growth because they will be unable to access that institutional level financing that really does utilize insurance in order to scale the money they, that will flow into projects. And so thus we thought a specialized insurance company could be an enabler to help a lot of the high quality projects and companies within the carbon markets grow. And so that is what we try to do with our, our insurance products. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. But for our audience and anyone listening who may not be fully aware of what carbon insurance is exactly, could you perhaps break it down? Like what exactly is it that Kita does and why is it so important aside from, you know, getting that institutional finance? Yeah, of course. And I suppose first let me just maybe break down insurance a little bit, because I think, again, this is something most people have no need to think of to the detail that I think about it. But people, broadly speaking, buy insurance, regardless of the industry, for three categories of reason. One is because you can't afford to lose something, right? The value of your asset is valuable to the extent that if you lost it, you couldn't afford to replace it. Um, and I think this is a key thing in the carbon markets right now. Often people invest off of their balance sheets. And so if they have a loss, it's on them to make good that loss. Insurance can very much come in there. We take away that risk from you such that you don't have to hold the replacement value on your own balance sheet. The insurance company can provide you that financial or, or carbon compensation on your behalf. But one reason to buy insurance is because you're worried about the loss. Um, one but reason to buy insurance is because it's just a standard part of a business transaction. So this would be, for example, let's say you're getting a mortgage for your house. The mortgage provider will very much expect you to have some form of house insurance to mitigate the risk that that house burns down. And if you don't have that insurance or you're unable to get that insurance, you're unlikely to get the mortgage. It's just a standard part of a business transaction. And then the final reason people often get insurance is because it provides some form of capital efficiency. So maybe if you are insured, you might get better terms of financing from your bank because the bank will feel like they are more likely to have their loan repaid because they can see some of your risks are mitigated. The final, final reason, but this isn't relevant to the carbon markets, is when insurance is a regulated requirement. But it is it is unlikely to be that in the carbon markets anytime soon. But this would be an example, for example, uh, in the UK, if you own a business uh, with more than two employees, you must have employer's liability insurance. Then high-level insurance Within the carbon markets, where insurance comes in is, is broadly speaking to help, again, to mitigate the risks. So the com some of the risks that we look at are natural catastrophe related risks. So many projects are nature based and they are exposed to things like fire and wind and storm and drought and all of these things that can damage the projects. Insurance can very much come in and mitigate that risk. Um, 
you could access, for example, standard fire insurance that replaces the timber that you've lost, but the carbon insurance would come in with a specific focus on the loss of the carbon asset, the carbon credits, which has a distinct value to the underlying trees. Um, another key risk that we look at is the political risk and regulatory risk. So for example, if you're a project developer or you're an investor or financier and you're investing in a carbon project in a specific country, you might run the risk that that country changes its mindset on carbon and maybe it decides to expropriate the, ash, the asset or nationalize it or maybe implement some form of tax upon that project or maybe block the export of the carbon credit outside of the country, cancel the corresponding adjustment. Any of these things would cause you some form of financial damage and loss of access to the carbon credits. Again, that is political risk insurance, which is a well-established form of insurance that would look to mitigate that type of risk in many other asset classes. Um, and that is a key risk and a, a key type of insurance that's being developed right now for the carbon markets. Final category of risk, actually two more I'll touch on quickly here. Um, another is counterparty. So if you invest into a carbon project and the counterparty is fraudulent or negligent or goes insolvent or abandons the project, right now, you are very exposed to that risk. Your ability to make good that loss via your contracts is probably relatively low. And again, insurance can come in and safeguard you against those counterparty risks. And then the final broad category where I think insurance can come in is on the carbon risk itself. So some carbon projects still do have methodologies that might be under um, undertaking some changes or maybe might be reliant on, on carbon standards or other verifiers, which might change how they, they look at that particular type of project, which could cause a downgrade to the resulting number of carbon credits. And again, insurance could mitigate against that. So these are the macro risks that we tend to look at. And Kita's insurance products are focused on being specialized towards those specific carbon risks. So for example, we look at the delivery risk. If you invest upfront into a young carbon project, what's the risk that that carbon project might not perform and you might not receive your carbon credits? We look at that risk on a high level. So we will cover many of those sub reasons for loss like counterparty and natural catastrophe. Um, I'll stop there to see if you have any questions, but that is the way that we think about insurance for this space, looking to identify the risk looking to identify how that risk impacts upon one of the counterparties in the transaction, and then looking to see if insurance can help take away some of the risk, which ideally helps to free up some capital. Because if without insurance, somebody in that transaction chain has to hold back some capital or hold back some carbon credits in case the risk happens so they can make it good themselves, insurance comes in to take away um, take away that requirement, the insurance company holds the risk and frees up the carbon company or the investor to go out and engage more fully in the market. Um, yeah, I was uh, actually interested in, in taking maybe a bit of a deeper dive into Keto's products, um, like exactly the kind of products that you offer and who they're meant for. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to do that. Who can benefit from? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right now, I'll talk through the products that we have, and then I'll, I'll talk high, high level a couple products that we have in development. 
So right now, our products are, are for the buyer or investor into the carbon project. We are working on some products right now that are for the project developer as well. But the first product that we launched is our carbon purchase protection cover, and it's a delivery risk product. And this is for a buyer or an investor or potentially a lender who is being proactive in the carbon markets is how I like to think of it. It would normally be a company that recognizes there will be supply shortages in the future and that the price might be rising in the future. And so thus they proactively want to lock in supply and lock in price today. And so these therefore are companies that are forward purchasing, pre-purchasing carbon projects. That then means that they are often investing in projects that aren't yet delivering carbon credits. And so this is where carbon purchase protection cover comes in. We ensure the buyer or investor who's doing a, a forward purchase or prepayment in a carbon project, and we protect them against the risk they don't receive the verified carbon credits they expect. And we would cover them for that under delivery or non-delivery due to reasons including natural catastrophe uh, of the underlying project, counterparty risks like fraud and negligence and abandonment and insolvency and, and sort of local acts of, of um, destruction, and also the carbon risks. So for example, the carbon standard or methodology being updated, um, or maybe the methodology being invalidated. These are the types of risks that we would cover for the client. And really the goal is to de-risk that investment for them and often enable them to go in earlier than they might otherwise feel comfortable doing. I will note with this product, we are able to pay insurance claims in both cash and in replacement carbon credits, which depending on the client, they might be interested in one or the other. But we do think that's one of the innovative the things that we're able to do um, with this insurance product. The other two products that we have available right now one is for really early stage carbon projects, those that are still at the project design stage. Um, we can do an abandonment and insolvency protection for these. So again, this is for an investor who's looking at going in really early and we would still protect against the risk they don't receive those carbon credits, but do specifically to the abandonment or insolvency of the project developer. And what we have seen here is that the, there are quite a few projects at this stage that fail. And in that instance, um, the project developer is, or if there's a delay to the validation by the carbon standard, it is possible for the project developer to just have lower cash flows than they expected from that project, which can lead to that form of, that form of loss for the investor. And so that is a a early stage insurance product that we offer. And that actually came out of a client request that we developed it for, and now we're able to offer it more widely. And then finally, at the later stage of projects, we're able to do an invalidation cover um, for fraud and negligence. So those are the products that we have available right now. I'll stop there, but also we, I can talk through some of the ones that we have in development. Um, yeah, actually, uh, if, if you could please elaborate um, on uh, like circling back to the eligible claims and, and paying them out in, in replacement carbon credits, could you please explain 
how that looks like? Like, well, where do these replacement carbon credits come from and how, how are they interchangeable, I guess, or, or fungible? Yeah, that is the key question, actually. You're right. The fungibility is the key challenge. And so that is, we thought a lot about this. And we actually wrote a report on it recently about fungibility um, to elaborate more on some of our thinking. But at a high level, we consider it today in today's market as our best match method. And so what this means is that we would work with a client at the point in time that they buy an insurance policy from us. They would stipulate whether they want an insurance claim in cash or in replacement carbon credits. And if they wish for an insurance claim to be paid in replacement carbon credits, at this point in time, we would agree with them the best match method for them. And at a high level, what this means is we recognize you didn't get the carbon that you wanted from the exact project that you wanted. And we all know buyers tend to be very specific about what they want. So we would first say, what are the required attributes of your replacement carbon credits? So A, obviously they must be usable for the purposes that you need them. But beyond that, what are the required attributes? Maybe it's vintage, maybe it's country, maybe it's type. But what must the replacement credits have? And then what are the comparison attributes? The comparison attributes don't have to be exactly the same, but they should be comparable. And different people will have different required versus comparable, uh, but we would look at it in that way. And then when we go out and find replacement credits, it's like a waterfall process. We try and find credits that have all the required attributes, find all of those that we can. And when we run out of required attributes, we start to go to comparison attributes until we have a pool of credits that we think are the best match. And those would be the options for our client. And if for some reason those are not suitable, they would always have the option to have the claim repaid in cash. And in terms of how we access those carbon credits, we have a carbon supplier pool with whom we work um, and with which we are having regular RFP processes to make sure that we can add to it. And then we will, if you think of it like an asset management fund almost in a way, we need to look at the policies that we have under management and the types of carbon credits we need to have access to. And then we need to make sure that matches with the supply that we have available. And that is an ongoing liquidity type management, except it's not a fund that we manage ourselves. It's relationships that we hold with suppliers in the market. Okay. And um, another question I have regarding what you just said, the pool of carbon credit suppliers that you have, can you speak to the types of projects in it? Like, are they all nature-based? Are there tech-based uh, carbon credits that are within your uh, supply as well? Yeah, so right now, there's both. I'd say the our majority of it is nature-based. I think that's where the majority of the market is and where we get a lot of queries are around nature-based afforestation-type projects. But certainly, we also need to have access to tech-based. And so um, we have access to you know, biochar, um, et cetera. And as we build out our insurance policies for more tech-based carbon removal types, that is when we will also add in more carbon suppliers who have access to those types. So it is really an ongoing matching process. Um, so for example, we can currently insure biochar credits and we are 
soon to be announcing enhanced rock weathering. And so thus, we need to make sure our supplier panel has access to those types, as well as in the future, as we move into other types like DAC and BEX, we will likewise need to expand our supplier panel. So it's an ongoing management process is how we consider it. Uh, and is there any geographical limitation as to the, the projects that you work with or are you just all over the world? That's a great question. So with insurance, we have two ways that we have to look at geographical restrictions. One is the insurance regulations are around who we insure. So the term here is are insured, but it's the company that buys insurance. This is where we have a lot of regulatory restrictions. So you are only, any insurance company is only allowed to sell insurance to companies where that insurance company has a license to sell insurance. And so currently we have licenses to sell insurance to companies in the US, UK, Canada, Singapore, and Switzerland. And we are working on the EU right now. That should be an announcement coming out relatively soon. However, that is the buyer of our insurance. The underlying carbon project, we don't have regulatory restrictions on, broadly speaking. So for where the carbon can be based, we have divided countries into risk tiers and based on things like um, corruption and fraud uh, indices in those countries, ability to assess things like land ownerships, uh, wider political risks. Uh, so we've divided the countries into tiers and the different tiers have slightly different price points to them. And then there are some countries that we are unable to do because they're outside of our risk appetite. So slightly too high risk for us to do right now. And then of course we have the countries that are sanctioned where we are just not allowed to do business. And that would be the same as many other regulated companies. We're just not allowed to do business in, in certain countries where there are sanctions. But the majority of countries in which there's carbon projects are, are countries in which we are allowed to work in terms of risk assessing the actual project in that country that is selling the carbon credits to our client who has to be in one of those countries where we have a license to sell insurance. Okay, thank you for, for the detailed response. Now, a question that I believe is very important and different people have very different opinions about it is uh, regarding the state of the VCMs at large. Uh, personally, I'm optimistic and I believe in its ability to have uh, an impact on climate change, even despite its current credibility issues. But what's your view on the matter and how do you see the market developing? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, too. I think this is one that people have asked me a lot this year. And I just want to make that up. It's a hot topic. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a bias, I suppose, because we're in the market and I am always bullish on the market. I mean, part of the reason that we decided to do insurance in this market is because we think it is so very essential because obviously we could have insured all sorts of things, right? You can be an insurance company, we could have insured renewables or, you know, hydrogen or what have you. But we chose carbon because we think it is absolutely essential, both to the fact of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and avoiding more carbon dioxide going in but also for its wider biodiversity purposes um, and, and social benefits as well. So, A, I'm always just biased towards the point in my mind that it must grow if we are to fight climate change. However, obviously what I feel it must do isn't necessarily what it will do. 
But I do feel positive about the market this year, to be honest. Um, I think, again, coming at it from the insurance perspective, I think insurance and other things like ratings and, and legal contracts and all of these things are the underpinnings to a market. And they take time to incorporate in. But I see more and more companies that work on underpinnings coming into the market. Um, and I think that is, to be honest, a very positive thing. Because the more normal the market can feel, so the more that investment structures and contracts look familiar to the big asset managers and the big banks, whose financing we need, the more likely they are to engage. And so I suppose one of the reasons I do feel comfortable, I feel confident in the market this year is because I think I increasingly see some of those underpinnings being put into place. And so as an example, when we first started, a lot of the contracts that we saw were what we would deem uninsurable contracts, by which I mean it was unclear who held the liability. So who was actually responsible if there was a loss? Um, some of them were very loosely worded. Some of them, it was, it just wasn't necessarily a contract we felt comfortable insuring. Because at the end of the day, insurance is behind the contract. Now, I don't see that as a problem anymore. You know, the contracts we see are very well structured. Uh, we feel safety, we feel confidence that there's unlikely to be a dispute between the parties. It, they have gotten much, much better. And I think quite quickly, I see increasingly, really over the last month, your larger financial institutions starting to come in and take this market a lot more seriously. We're getting a lot more queries from banks who are looking at giving loans. Again, I see that as a real positive driver. And then I do hope that some of the, I suppose, challenges the market had last year have been addressed and that we can move forward with them. And I always make the point, no market in the world is perfect and we can't hold ourselves to some pursuit of perfection, but we need to come up with the standard of what is good enough um, and then work to to develop, again, going back to some point to the fungibility and sort of equivalency ratios, to work to then differentiate ourselves above that point, but without holding everybody to the pursuit of perfection. Because if we have a large functioning market, projects and companies will fail, but the market will have a way of having repercussions for that without those individual failures taking down everybody. And I do see the market heading in that direction. I don't expect it to do it within perfection this year, um, but I see positive movement. So I'm, I'm quite bullish. Okay, so in, in that same light of thought, perhaps, uh, how big do you believe the carbon insurance industry will become over the coming years? That also is a good question. That's also very crystal ball gazing. We actually just did a report with a consultancy called Oxbow Partners, um, so we just released a report on this very topic last month, and our projection is that the insurance market can get to around one billion in what we term gross written premium by 2030. Gross written premium is, if you think about it, the revenue the insurance companies make. So if I 
you know, sell you an insurance policy for a hundred pounds and I charge you an insurance premium of 1% and the gross written premium is the money that I actually make. So the volume of actual sort of insured value will be much higher than 1 billion, but we think the revenue insurance industry can make could be what 1 billion by 2030. Um, and then much, much larger than that by 2050. I think what you see when you look at other insurance markets or other markets more widely is it usually takes about 10 years to go from sort of like zero to 1 billion. And then from there, it can scale quickly. So we are very, as again, as you can imagine, bullish on the insurance industry, but I don't think it's easy. One of the reasons why Kita exists is because the insurance industry as a whole tends to be quite risk adverse for new things. And it's regardless if it's carbon or if it's, you know, a, a, another form of new technology. But when you don't have the ability to look at how many insurance claims have been paid in the past, it makes insurance companies uncomfortable because it's hard for us to quantify how many insurance claims we're going to pay in the future, which is in essence our profitability. And so usually young specialist companies such as Kita come in to help pave the way to prove that it's doable. And we very much see it as part of our job to help prove that insurance works in the carbon markets such that more insurance companies start to come in. Because if more insurance companies don't come in, then there will be a very low cap to how much insurance is available. And then that doesn't help anybody. So what we want to be able to see is, you know, financing structures of 100 million or more per project. And if you're going to look at that, you need some large insurance companies coming into this space. And so I think the next couple of years for insurance are still proving the market, both in terms of educating the carbon markets as to exactly what insurance does and how we can provide you cost benefits. Because at the end of the day, I think a lot of insurance in this space, if it helps you get in earlier into a project, or if it helps you sell an insured carbon credit at a higher price, or if it helps you get a loan on better terms, the insurance actually saves you money or makes you money. But there is a lot of education for us to do within the carbon markets as to how insurance works. And then there is a lot of education for us still to do within the insurance market to help the insurance companies get comfortable with these new risks. So I think the next couple of years are still that. And then I think the later half of this decade is when it's really going to, to grow, probably, I'd guess, sort of latter half of maybe 2025 onwards. Um, I think we'll see significant growth. But already in 2024, it's been a, a lot a lot more pipeline coming in, even in the first month, um, than I would say this time last year. So it's definitely on the up. Speaking of uh, growth, does Kita plan on expanding its products to potentially also cover carbon capture and storage, maybe? Oh, yeah, definitely. Actually, that is very much on our roadmap. And we hired a technical underwriting advisor so Q4 last year, who has you know, decades and decades in the insurance industry, but looking at all forms of underground storage. And so that's very much where his expertise is coming in handy, helping us look at carbon capture storage and director capture and specs and just the forms of carbon that are you know, captured and put into underground storage forms because the risks of that are very, very technical. And so, yes, 100%, that is very much on our roadmap. And I, I see that as an exciting 
space both for the carbon markets, but in all honesty, also for the insurance markets, because those are risks that many insurance companies actually are very comfortable with because they have, at the end of the day, been insuring oil and gas companies for years. Um, so the concept of underground storage and transport is is within the the knowledge base of the insurance industry. And I think we could see some some good overlaps there, but Kita would definitely like to be in that space as well. You mentioned some other upcoming announcements earlier. Uh, can you share a little bit more about them or are there any other major developments or announcements for the near and perhaps not so near future that you're ready to share already? Ooh, I don't know. A scoop. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think my PR team might get too mad at me if I say too much. But probably one one thing which I, I probably alluded to earlier is the political risk side. Um, I do expect us to come out with a political risk insurance product in the not too distant future, which would be looking to protect those developers and investors against the loss due to a, a political risk event such as the expropriation um, or block of export license that, or, or revocation of a corresponding adjustment. And I do right now think this is a significant risk holding back a lot of investment and so it's very much within our, our I guess, purpose um, to try and help mitigate that risk. And I also think it's very, going back to the size of the insurance industry, I think this is another risk that the insurance industry can really stand behind. Because again, you have had specialist insurance companies for years looking at how do you mitigate risks of investments into developing countries. And so I think this is an area where the insurance industry can really have some power to help carbon investments grow. Um, and again, like always, we would like to be front of the pack demonstrating that it is doable. And that's that's really where we see Kita's role here. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Natalia. This was a very insightful conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing so much of your knowledge and kind of uh, shining a light on uh, what the carbon insurance industry looks like to date. It was a genuine pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of the Carbon Stations podcast and would like to hear more conversations like this, please be sure to subscribe. We really appreciate the support.